Hey, what's up, Harvest? How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, it's good to see all of you. Hey, can we thank the worship team for leading us again so well in worship? That is always such a joy. Uh, anyone else getting chills for How Great Thou Art, or was that just me, right? Like, that was, that was a really, really cool moment. Thankful for them, and, you know, they get here Saturday afternoon early and give all weekend to help lead us. So what a, a cool thing it is to be led by those people. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to 1 Corinthians 2? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 2, and if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who'd love to get a copy of God's Word into your hands. We're basically, for uh, now until Easter, we're going to work through a chapter of Corinthians a week almost, and so we're going to be moving through a lot of Scripture. You're going to want your Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, consider that our gift to you. Just keep that and bring that home. We'd love for you to have it. And if you're new here, my name is Calvin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm just so thankful that you're worshiping with us. It's our pleasure to have you with us this weekend. And just to get us all on the same page again, um, we are going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and that was a letter written by Paul to a church that he had planted. And this church is super young. Um, it's in a big city that's a hard city to plant a church in. Uh, Corinth was like the combination of Las Vegas and San Francisco. It was a massive port city. Corinthians were known for being crazy people, partying hard. There was a temple that was uh, dedicated to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. And as part of worshiping the Greek goddess of love, there were a thousand temple prostitutes on call at any moment where to worship Aphrodite, you would go up to the temple and have sex. It was a culture that was very, very far away from the morality that God would have called us to live. And they're struggling to figure out how to do church. I mean, think about this. The church at Corinth didn't even have the Bible, right? Paul was there for 18 months and then he left and they're trying to figure out how to do things on their own and they're struggling. So Corinthians is a church written by the planting pastor to these people that he loves to encourage them and help them in a difficult season. And what Paul's going to do is, is he's going to basically say, hey, we need to go back to the beginning and we need to remember how this church started. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of division. And he's saying, listen, we need to go back to the beginning. He's saying we need to be unified. We need to be on the same page. And let's go back to how we began. And the big idea this morning that's going to kind of set the stage for where we're going, it's this. It's that the best thing for our church is the simplest thing. The best thing for our church, along with the church in Corinthians, is we got to get back to the simplest thing. And this is what Paul is writing about and trying to convince them of in chapter 2. Are any of you guys familiar with the term Occam's Razor? Have you guys heard that before in school? Raise your hand if you've heard of Occam's Razor. All right, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Occam's Razor, it's a philosophical principle that says this. That when presented with many possible solutions to a problem, almost always the simplest solution is the best solution and it's the right solution. So here's an example to illustrate this. You guys got communion cups, right, when we had communion earlier. Here's a question. How did the juice get into the cup? Did it just magically happen? Right, well the simplest solution to that is, well the church bought grape juice and someone poured the grape juice into the little cups, and that's how the juice got into the cup. All right, another solution for how the juice could have ended up there is that we made poor Jody buy a million grapes. And she has spent the past three weeks squeezing each individual grape into the cup until it is full, and that's how you got juice in your cup. Which is more likely? 
The first, right? Because it's the simplest. And Occam's razor is this principle that the simplest solution is almost always the best. We use this in Christian apologetics all the time. When you look at creation, when you look at the world, and you see how complex it is, and you see the design, and you see how things work together, and you see the beauty, the most simple explanation is that there is a higher being who is more powerful and smarter than us that created the world. Design demands a designer, creation demands a creator. That's the simplest explanation. Now compare that to evolution, where, well, no, 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 actually everything started with nothing, and out of that nothingness, something exploded, how? We don't know, but it exploded and it created everything. And then in that explosion, a rock um, somehow landed close enough to a star that we call the sun and gravity, which wasn't a thing until the explosion, then held it in orbit. And on that rock, somehow out of the explosion, life appeared which we can't duplicate or replicate. And there was a single cell organism that somehow managed to survive and then multiply and duplicate, which led into everything we see today. Right? If you run evolution through the principle of Occam's razor, it's an absurd theory. What's simplest is what's best. And I think this plays out into life too, right? Like we're in January and that means we're in diet season, right? We, we know this well. In December, we eat like fools. And then we try to get back in shape and diet in January. I was talking to someone this week who has a sister who's a personal trainer. And she said 70% of all new business happens in January for personal trainers. It's like if you miss the January rush, you've missed the entire year. And if you like go online, there are insanely complex diets, right? Like there's some diets are like, hey, if you want to lose weight, here's what you need to do. You need to eat these 50 vitamins. Um, you can only consume food upside down and you need to cry seven times a day and you're going to lose weight. It's amazing, right? It's incredibly complex. But guess what science has found? That the simplest solution is the best. If you want to lose weight and feel good, um, eat healthy. Don't load up on carbs and sugar. Manage your portions. Drink enough water. Get sleep at night and be active every day. If you do the simple things consistently, it's the best way to have a healthy lifestyle. What's simplest is best. And the Corinthian church had lost its way. And they were arguing and they were fighting. And Paul is saying, no, no, we got to get back to what's simple. The simplest thing is the best thing. So let's see how this plays out. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul, talking about himself, says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right? And what Paul is doing in these five verses, he's saying, listen, when I came here, I set a tone. My job was to build the foundation, to set a right tone. And that tone is my responsibility. So the role of leadership, he is saying, in the church is we have to set the right tone. Because when I came... I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That was the tone I set. And, and look here. 
You guys know that whether you're leading a business or a family or a church or a sports team, in the role of leadership, one of your primary jobs is to set the tone. It's to set a right culture. That's what leaders do. And what Paul's saying is, is I set a right tone when I planted this church. All right, throw up the next picture. Okay, you see that cute little guy on the left in the white jersey? That's Alec Bright, our worship leader. He just led us this uh, morning, and um, he is standing next to his older brother, Colin. And um, Alec was a sophomore. This is in 2010. Colin was a senior, and they're celebrating winning the state championship in soccer for Division Four in Michigan. And I was a coach on that team. And I had just moved from Orlando, and Chris and I, as we were planting this church with my dad, were saying, how can we get involved in the community? We want to have an impact in the community. What are some ways we can connect with people? And I played soccer at WMC, and I have played soccer my whole life. And I'm like, hey, maybe they'll let me coach. So my dad and I actually became assistant coaches for the WMC soccer team. And the way that team was set up was it was mostly juniors and seniors, and they had a really strong team, a lot of maturity, but they were missing one position that was really important, and that was center midfield. And if you know anything about soccer, the center midfield is like the most important position. The whole game runs through that player. He plays both offense and defense. He sets everyone up. He's got to be able to pass and shoot and dribble. It's an important position, and we didn't have a center mid. So we took Alec, who was a sophomore, and brought him up to varsity to fill this hole because he was a young player, but he was good. And I played center midfield when I was a, a soccer player in high school. So my job as the assistant coach was, it was my job to get Alec up to speed so that he wouldn't let his older teammates down. He was my project, all right? So all year, I referred to Alec as my baby boy, all right? Hey, and he, you know, he'd be hanging out with the seniors trying to be cool. I'd be like, hey, how's my baby boy doing today, right? Eight years later, I still call him my baby boy. He still hates it. It's awesome. I love it. But he was like my project. And Alec was a good player. He could pass. He could dribble. He could shoot. He could play defense. But what drove me crazy about Alec was he kept playing like a sophomore. He played like he was young and like he was scared. And so I'd be like, Alec, you can't play scared. If your opponents know you're nervous, they're going to take advantage of you. You have to set the tone. You have to control the game. You have to show, like, um, the other team that you're not going to get pushed around. And I understand that's really hard because you only weigh 85 pounds, but you got to do it, right? And um, I was like, set the tone, set the tone. And as the season went on, he, he, just, he just couldn't do it. And, and he kept just playing timid. And before playoffs, I'm like, we've got to get this fixed. And, and I've got to make this happen. So I remember it was right before the game, like two minutes before a game. And they just had their huddle. The players were walking to the field. And I did this away from our head coach because I knew if he heard this, I'd get in trouble. But I pulled Alec over and I was like, Alec, here's what you're going to do. You're going to stop being afraid. You're going to set the tone. In the first five minutes of this game, you're going to foul someone. You're going to trip them. You're going to push them over. I don't care. But you're going to get called for a foul. And if you don't get called for a foul, I'm going to pull you out. You're not coming back in. And he was like terrified, right? Like he's shaking. He's like, okay, 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 coach. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So literally the whistle blows. The other team has the ball. They make one pass and Al instantly just goes and runs and trips someone. Seven seconds into the game. And then after he trips him, he looks at me and smiles. And I'm like, you blew our cover, right? This was supposed to be our secret. But the whole point was, Alec, you're a leader of this team. You play an important position. You have to set the tone. Leaders set the tone. Paul is saying, when I came here, I set a right tone, and that tone was that we were going to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. 
And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you take notes in your Bible, underline the word I decided. All right, that's really important. He says, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Here's the thing. Paul was very smart. He was super highly educated. He was a leader in the Pharisees in Israel before he was saved. He knew the Bible, the Old Testament super well. And he goes, listen, I could have come and made the church about how smart I am and how much I know, but I made the conscious decision not to speak to you with lofty words of wisdom. I just talked about Jesus and the fact that he came, that God sent him because he loved us. And even though we are enemies with God, he sent his own son so that he would live the life that we should have lived but can't live and die the death that we deserve so that we can have life. And that there is nobody in this room who is too far away from God's love because he sent his son to perfectly pay what you owe. And we can know God. We can be adopted into his family. We can have life. We can have joy. And we can have victory today because of Jesus Christ. Amen? He said, that's what I made this church about. That was the tone that I had set. This has been a tone that we have tried to set in our church from day one. We wanted to be a gospel-centered ministry. So what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that every week we just read the same passage, which is the account of the death and um, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't mean we only talk about that passage. But what it means is, is in every layer of our ministry, we are constantly pointing people back to Jesus Christ and what his death and resurrection means for us. So in any text we are in, the whole Bible is one story. It's about Jesus Christ. And whether we're in Exodus or in Corinthians or in Revelation, we're going to pick moments where we point, hey, remember what Jesus has done. And the reason we can change and have victories because we're empowered through what Christ has done. We're pointing people back to the gospel. We do that in high school ministry, in middle school ministry, in children's ministry. Listen, in our counseling or our soul care ministry, if a couple comes in and their marriage is struggling, here's what we do. We open God's word and we say, all right, men, you're called to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. He sacrificially laid down his life for the church. So we need to sacrificially love our wife. And this is how you do it. We bring them back to Jesus and the gospel. If someone is struggling with fear or anxiety, right, how can we have peace? Well, we go to Philippians because we can pray to God, we can talk to God, we know that God is in control and we're going to believe the promises that his peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's about Jesus and we know that God is with us because of what Jesus has done for us. The power for life and transformation is in the gospel. And here's the thing, when everyone's focus is on Jesus, unity becomes natural because we're all facing and pulling the same direction. Right? Unfortunately, though, it's very, very easy for churches to get distracted and move off course to lose the tone that they should have set. So what I want to do is I want to talk about three ways churches can get off course. Okay, here's the first. The first way we can get off course is what I'd like to call mission drift. Mission drift, where all of a sudden the gospel doesn't become the main thing. It becomes a secondary thing and something else becomes primary. And here's what's tricky about this. A lot of the times when churches drift off of mission, they're chasing after really, really good things. 
that God loves, but it's not the main thing. And rather than being about Jesus Christ and the gospel, the church becomes about something else which is good, but that's not a good thing when the main thing isn't the main thing. When I was living in Orlando, um, it, was, it was very, very unique. There was a church in the area that really promoted themselves and pushed themselves as we're the adoption church. And our church is all about one thing. It's about adoption. And if you want to adopt a child, you need to come to our church because we have people there that can help you adopt. And if you have adopted, you need support. So come to our church. And they, they didn't have small groups. They had adoption groups. And their whole thing was adoption, adoption, adoption. Now listen, adoption's amazing. What an awesome way to reflect the heart of God to take in a child who doesn't have a mother or a father or has a broken family and say, you're going to be part of my family. That's a picture of what God has done to us. He has adopted us as his children. I love adoption. But the church does not exist for the cause of adoption. Can it be an outflowing of a church that honors the Lord and loves the gospel? Yes, but it's not the main thing. Does that make sense? Another big one today in our culture um, where people can mission drift is the issue of racial reconciliation and diversity. And listen, I love racial reconciliation. I want our church to be diverse. That's a good thing. Listen, the reason racism exists in our world is because we are sinful people and we have sinful hearts and we are blinded and we believe the lie that the people who look like us and think like us and talk like us are the best and safest people. It's a lie that Satan has woven into humanity and racism breaks the heart of God. And the church should be leading the way and saying, listen, no, we are all created equal. We are all part of God's family. And because we have Jesus Christ in common, even if we don't have much else in common, we can love one another and serve one another and be kind to one another because we have the same Lord and we're going to be spending eternity with one another. Right? We should be leading the way in our culture of what it means to love people who are different than us. But that's not the entire or sole purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to magnify the message of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so here's what's difficult. In order to set the right tone, in order to not fall into mission drift, that means that our leadership has had to say no to a lot of really good things. You would be shocked at how many requests we get from people in the community for our church. Where it's like, hey, can your church get behind this project? Or can your church get involved in this? Or can we have a pastor sit on this school board or in this council? Or, or would you guys get behind this politician? We are, requests are made of us all the time. And, and when we say no to those things, here's the response. Well, don't you even care about the community? Yeah, of course we care about the community. I moved across the country with my family to plant a church here because I love this community. But the best way that I can love this community is to make sure that our church is making much of Jesus Christ every single weekend and every single week in small groups that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high and then believe that that is going to have a transforming impact on our community. We have to stay on point. We can't have mission drift. I'm so thankful for our elders and our leadership's commitment to that. Here's the next one. Uh, a next way a, a church can get off is a hyper-focus on secondary issues. A hyper-focus on secondary issues where theology or things about God, um, which might even be true and good, um, there's too much focus to where it gets unhealthy. Again, when I was living in Orlando, we had a problem. I, I graduated from Moody in 2008. 
I got married and we moved to Orlando, but my wife, Mary, she was only, she'd only finished her sophomore year. So she was halfway through Moody and she's like, I need to find a school that will take the, as many credits as possible. And that's really tricky with Moody because there's so many Bible courses you take that most schools won't take those credits. So we were able to find a very, very small school about 45 minutes away that's like, hey, we'll take all of your credits. We'll take everything, just come. That should have been like a red flag for us. But hey, we didn't know. We were young and stupid. And um, this school, um, again, was super, super small. And it was connected to a denomination which is called the Church of Christ. And the Church of Christ is really known for two theological distinctions. The first is they care a ton about baptism. Like, like they're like, baptism is so important. They even will teach and say, if you do not get baptized... It doesn't matter if you prayed the sinner's prayer. It doesn't matter if you love Jesus. If it doesn't matter if you've repented of your sins and believe in him as Savior. If you don't physically get dunked underwater, you're not going to heaven. They elevate baptism to a salvific level. And then when you ask them questions like, well, what about the thief on the cross who trusted in Christ when he was dying? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. They're like, ah, God makes exceptions, right? There's for sure holes in this theology, but they care a ton about it. The second thing that they care a ton about is um, their Arminian, which means that man finds God, man chooses God, man seeks God, and God is way more passive in the role of salvation. So everyone has an equal chance to find God, and the ones that do, that's great, and, and the ones that don't, that's on them. And I remember, like, Mary, three weeks into class, she had a classmate turn to her, and, like, in a very angry kind of voice, she goes, listen, you Calvinists, you guys stick out like a sore thumb here. She goes, there's only five of you in this whole school, and I can name every single one. And Mary's like, what a weird thing to say to someone. Like, you're weird, you know? That didn't help. But, but here's the thing. The fact that theological differences were causing disunity and anger, and Mary felt isolated because she didn't believe exactly what everyone else believed, that was a problem. It was a hyper-focus. And listen, there's things that we have convictions on. We have convictions on creation. We have convictions on end times. We've done end times conferences. Like these are good things, but they can't be the main thing. I never want to be, well, you're the creationist church or you're the end times church. I want to be the Jesus church because that's what our focus needs to be because the gospel is the power of salvation. And then here's the third, and this one's super dangerous. It's really easy for churches to become about what we're against rather than what we're for. And here's the danger in this. When our eyes are off Jesus, the next place they're going to go is onto ourselves. If your eyes aren't on Jesus, they're going to be on you. And it's in our sin nature to believe that we're doing things awesome. And if everyone thought like us and did things like us, the world would be a perfect place. And so we begin to look down on others, both inside the church and outside the church. So when it comes to unbelievers, rather than viewing them as people who are lost, who God has created and loves and is desperate that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, rather than loving them, we're like, man, they're the enemy. They're different than us. They're, they're against us. And, and how can they not believe? And they're wicked and they're evil. And we have this sense of superiority. And that does not reflect the heart of Jesus. Our heart should be broken. We should be loving. We should be desperate that the people in our lives who don't know the Lord would come to know the Lord because eternity is at stake. And then we also, um, rather than celebrating what connects churches, 
We play the comparison game and focus on how we're different. Listen, there are so many churches in this community that love the Lord, that preach the gospel where God is working and lives are being changed. But it's in our nature to be like, well, we have the best worship or we have the best small groups or we have the best children's ministry. And we're like, man, everyone should, should, should come here or do this or do things the way I do it. Listen, we can't be like that. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus or else we're going to become more about what we're against rather than what we are for. This was happening in the Corinthian church. Some people are like, well, I follow Paul and Paul planted the church, so I'm the best because I follow him. And others are like, no, I follow Apollos and Apollos is way smarter than Paul. And so because he's smarter, I'm smarter by definition, so I'm the best. And others are like, no, 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 I follow Peter. Peter was a disciple. He's closest to Jesus, so I'm closest to Jesus because I follow Peter, right? They were becoming about what they were against rather than what they were for. It's really dangerous. All right, let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which is decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thought of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All right, now there's a lot there. So let's park on verses 12 again. This, this is really the crux of what Paul is saying. He's saying, now we have received a spirit not of the world, but a spirit who is from God. Look at this. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Right, here's the, the role of the spirit. So if the role of the leadership is to set the right tone, the role of the spirit is to give understanding. Paul's saying, I did not come with lofty words of wisdom. I preached Christ crucified and I relied on the Holy Spirit to give understanding and to work in your hearts. Okay, look here. This is so important. I am keenly aware, even right now, that I have absolutely zero power to convince you of anything. I have zero power to transform your hearts. I am 100% dependent on God's spirit to do what I cannot do. All right, and look at verse three. This is so important. Hop back up to verse three. Look at what he says. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Okay, why would Paul say that? He's not a coward. Paul was the farthest thing away from being fearful of man. When he was a Pharisee, he was like the most aggressive. He was persecuting Christians. He was going into houses, pulling people out by their hair and throwing them in prison. He wasn't afraid of conflict. He spoke to men in Athens and philosophers and he challenged them. He spoke to kings. He was thrown in prison. And when he was thrown in prison, he drove the guards crazy because he was singing and rejoicing. He got shipwrecked. He got bitten by a snake. He knew the entire time he was headed to Rome to be beheaded. And he wasn't afraid. 
So why does Paul say in verse 3, I was with you in fear and in trembling? You want to know why? Because he was aware that if the spirit did not move in power, none of it would matter. He's like, I'm giving my life to preach the gospel and I have zero power to change anything. I need God's spirit. Look what he says in verses, uh, verse 4. Let me get there. He says this. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He's saying, listen, the only thing that I have is the gospel, and I'm trusting the Spirit. It's my only shot. It's my only message. He was fearful because he knew he needed the Spirit or nothing would happen. I remember... This was the fear we felt eight years ago when we planted this church. Both Chris and I had left stable jobs in ministry, had moved across the country, and there was this fear, like, what if God doesn't move? I've uprooted my family. I've left a stable job. What if no one comes? What if nothing happens? What if, what if God's spirit doesn't move? And by the way, I feel this fear every single week. There is absolutely a sense that before I get up here and preach, there is fear and trembling in my heart because, listen, if God's spirit doesn't move, we are just sitting here wasting our time going through the motions. And our eternity is too important to be going through the motions. And one of the things that I do for the church that you guys might not even be aware of is one of my primary jobs is I coach and I train and I bring up our young preachers. And so that's primarily Nate Buchanan, who oversees our middle school ministry, Taylor, who oversees our high school ministry, and Alec, who leads worship for us. But he also preaches for both our junior high and high school about once a month. And so what that means is, is every junior high and high school message, they videotape. So there's a recorder, just like our live stream in the back of the room, and every Tuesday that's given to me, and I watch the message. And then what I do is, is I meet with them on Wednesday, and we go over it. And here's what you have to understand. Did you know that it is way, 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 way more difficult to preach to junior hires and high schoolers than it is adults? You know that like their job is way harder than mine and it's hard for different reasons. It's really hard preaching to junior hires because they're just trying to survive puberty, right? Like that's all that they're trying to do. Junior hires are like, listen, if my armpits don't smell, if my voice doesn't crack and I do nothing awkward, it's a win. That's all I'm going for. 90% of their mental capacity is don't be weird, don't be weird, don't be weird. So they only have 10% of what they can give to hearing or responding to anything. And for high schoolers, it's hard for a completely different reason. Because high schoolers, the most lame thing you can do is be excited about anything, right? The least cool thing you can do is show any ounce of emotion. So that means even if you preach a great message, all you're going to get is like, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to go play Fortnite. You know, like, that's it. That, that, that's the only gear they have. They're so self-conscious that to be excited about anything, they're like, oh, that's so lame. I, I would never do that. I'm like, all I'm asking you to do is smile, you know? And so what will happen is, is on occasion, Taylor or Alec or Nate will be discouraged. They'll be like, listen, I'm doing my best, and I'm just not getting a ton of response. Right? And in that moment, it's my job to remind them, listen, you're being faithful to the word of God. You're preaching the gospel. It is not on you to change hearts. You've got to get on your knees and pray and rely on the Holy Spirit to do what you cannot do. You be faithful. You stick with it. God loves these kids. He's going to move and he's going to work. And by the way, by God's grace, we have seen this year multiple junior hires and high schoolers come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's doing it. But we can't force it. 
We need to rely on the Spirit to give understanding. So here's what that means. What it means to give understanding is I can talk about marriage, but I have no idea what's going on in your marriage or in your relationship. So I can give principles, but I need the Spirit to impart, all right, this is how this applies specifically to my life. I can talk about forgiveness, but I don't need, I don't know who you need to forgive or what relationship is broken and what forgiveness looks like and what happens all the time. And I love this. People will come up to me after the service, after I'm done preaching. And they're like, did you know what's going on in my life right now? Cause you were preaching right at me. And I'm like, no, I have no idea what's going on in your life. And that's how the Holy Spirit works though. And that's awesome. Um, I've even had people come up to me upset and they'll be like, who ratted me out to you? Did my small group leader tell you what's going on in my life? Because your message perfectly applies to what I'm going on to. Did someone rat me out? And I'm like, the idea that I would write an entire sermon just for you is kind of crazy. I would never do that. Um, but I think the Holy Spirit has something for you. Right? We need to rely on the Spirit. Can I ask you a question? Are you desperate for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Like when you're here, are you desperate for God's Spirit to move? Church, we need to understand this. What happens here in our weekly gatherings is so much more significant than us just coming together and singing some songs and hearing a message. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. That he is with us when we gather together. James 4, 8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that what worship is? It's us drawing together saying, God, you are great and we love you, then sings my soul how great thou art. And listen, this is more than a concert and a TED Talk. But God's word says that when God's people come together in God's house, his spirit is present with us in a supernatural way that is different than when you and I are alone in our car singing worship songs. There is something eternally significant happening. Are you desperate to meet with God's spirit even right now? God, show yourself to me. Help me transform my heart. Do you know that every service you're prayed for? You know that we have teams that meet together before the services that go through the passage of scripture together and just pray that his spirit would move and be present and that he would work in power this weekend. Every week that happens. Every service before the worship team goes out, we gather together and we pray. And we say, God, we've practiced, we've rehearsed, we've done the work, but we acknowledge that we are powerless to do anything if your spirit does not show up. We are desperate here at this church for God's spirit and presence to move. We never want to leave that place. Are you desperate for God's spirit? Look at verse 14 as we finish up. He says this, For the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. All right, so if the leadership's job is to set the right tone, which is the gospel, the spirit gives understanding, then our role or the role as the church is simply this. We need to stay on point. All right, and this is so interesting. It's interesting that Paul starts by saying, I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He started saying it was all about Christ. And then chapter two ends with, and we have the mind of Christ. 
He's saying it's all about Christ, but our job as the people of God is to view our lives through the lens of the gospel, through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's what that means. What does it mean practically to stay on point? These aren't in your notes, but if you're writing notes, write these down. Um, Here's what that means. If we're going to stay on point as a church, we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to what's happening around us. We live in a culture that is giving hundreds of gospel messages to us every single day. We are inundated with gospel messages. Hey, this new job, it's going to save you. Hey, technology, it's going to save you. Hey, love is going to save you. This relationship is going to save you. Sex is going to save you. This new vacuum is going to save you. It's amazing. This new diet is going to save you. We are inundated with messages of salvation. Church, I need to ask you this again. Where's your hope this morning? Is your hope in Jesus Christ or is it in your children? Is your hope in Jesus Christ or is it in your friend group? Is your hope in Jesus Christ or is it in the stability of your life right now? What is the one thing that you're like, if I lose everything else, I'll be okay if I have this? Because if it's not Jesus Christ, you're going to be a wave tossed by the sea of circumstances. Pay attention. What are you hoping in? What are you believing in? Um, Pay attention at church. I would never want to be so arrogant to believe that we're always going to be perfect and we're always going to be right on point and we're always going to have it perfectly together. So I need your help to make sure, hey, when we come to church, is Jesus Christ being lifted high in our worship? Are we preaching from God's word, glorifying him by submitting ourselves to the word of God? Is Christ in our preaching? Is Christ in your small group? Is your small group simply just about becoming a better husband or a better wife or a better employee or mom and dad? Or is it about loving Jesus more and living a life that is devoted and committed to our Savior? Is Jesus central? We need to pay attention. Um, The second thing we need to do is we need to remember the gospel in our own lives. I think practically when we get most discouraged or frustrated or even despair... It's because practically we've forgotten the message of the gospel in our life. We have stopped remembering that God not only loves us, but he delights in us. He likes us. He's happy with us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even when we fail, he is not a judge looking to punish, but he is a father looking to embrace and forgive. And it's easy to forget what God has done in our past And if we forget God's past faithfulness, we're going to be overwhelmed with the weight of our present circumstances. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, um, in our small group, one of the men was sharing in our split time, and he was just a little bit discouraged. And he's like, there's some things that are difficult in my family, and I just don't think I'm doing enough job, a good enough job. I'm not leading well. I need to do better. And he was putting a weight on his shoulders, which wasn't his to bear. And, And so I told this man, listen, can we just pause for a second? Can we remember what your life looked like six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago? Can we remember what God has done in your family and in your life and in your marriage? Can we just take a moment and celebrate God's faithfulness? Because if we can remember that God has been faithful, I know that God will be faithful today and tomorrow because his promises are true. Amen? We need to stop being so overwhelmed with just the present and remember the goodness of God to us. 
All of us have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And part of our job is we need to remind each other of his goodness. Because in the moment, it's easy to forget. We need to remember the gospel. And then here's the third. Don't get bored of the gospel. Don't lose your excitement for what God has done for you. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross is not the entryway into the Christian life. It's not like it's just the door and then we move on to bigger or better things. Listen, every day we need to remind ourselves what Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. Listen, your neighbors and coworkers who don't know the Lord, they don't need to know how to be a better husband or a better coworker or a better friend. They need to know about what Jesus did for them and his love for them and how that changes things. We need to remember what Jesus has done for us, how he loves us, and how that changes things. It is the power of God of salvation, of life, of transformation, of joy, of victory, of power. It's the power of our lives. Our job is to set the right tone. We're going to trust the Spirit to do what only God's Spirit can do and to supernaturally transform and give understanding. And then we need to stay on point. So church, can I ask you this question? Are you still today excited about Jesus Christ? Is he still the best and sweetest thing in your life? I pray that that's true of our church. And I pray that we spend as long as the Lord gives us time together pressing into that more and more in deeper and more beautiful ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so good and you're so kind to us. And God, I'm just so thankful that even right now your spirit is present. And God, I just pray for those who maybe have lost their first love, that your spirit would prick their hearts, that you would do what only you can do, and that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation like David cries out in Psalms. May we never be bored of what you are doing and what you have done. May we remember your goodness and faithfulness. God, we need you every day. And I confess that we are powerless as people to do anything if you don't move. Our entire lives may be ring, rung out for your glory. May we ring ourselves out for your fame. We love you. And it's in your great and beautiful son's name we pray. Amen.